Well, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, we're fully expecting another crowd to come in at the end of this service who forgot to set their clocks forward. So, but uh, anyway, hey, I'm, I want to welcome you. If you're visiting today, uh, thank you for being here. We're actually in the middle of a series, uh, or at the beginning of a series, actually, uh, through the season of Lent, which is uh, 40 days plus Sundays uh, before Easter. And uh, our theme as we're looking through this series is breaking expectations. So we're looking at several encounters that Jesus is having with folks and how their expectations are broken and what that can say to us in our life as we come to faith and come to practice our faith and to be Jesus' followers uh, in the world after we leave here. Um, If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John. So in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 3. And I'm going to, the, the, you may want to read all of uh, the section, which is uh, uh, chapter 1, one, verses 1, all the way through 21. But we're only going to be reading a few of those today. And uh, I'll talk you through it. So if you're able, out of respect for God's word, would you be willing to stand? So we read together John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then skipping down to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I wish I had learned this lesson earlier in my life. I'm sure many of you have had the same experiences in your life. You know, it's in the way that people ask questions. You, You know, you've probably had somebody ask you a question that they thought they already knew the answer. And there's nothing worse than being asked a question by someone who thinks they already know the answer. I remember years ago when I served on a particular committee where the chair of the committee was very intentional at making sure everyone on the committee was able to offer their perspective or their opinion. And after everyone had done that, and we were all feeling good about all of the uh, participatory nature of that meeting, the chair would go, well, thank you very much for offering all of those wonderful insights, but don't you think, dot, dot, dot. Y'all probably been in similar situations. And I remember that uh, as the months went by, she would come to me and she would say to me, I just don't understand. No one is really participating in the meeting anymore. There for a while, as she would say, well, don't you think? And they would come back and say, well, 
no, I, I think this, and, but don't you think? And then finally, they just quit talking. And she said, I just wish people would share their opinions. No, you don't. You mainly want people to agree with you. I didn't say that as the pastor, but I was thinking it. See, y'all need to realize when you come and talk to pastors, there's things we say back to you, and then there's things we think in. We've all had the experience of dealing with somebody who asks a question, but the sole intention of their asking the question is simply to get confirmation that they're correct, and they're really not open to learning anything new. It's a really kind of special kind of person that does that, isn't it? And Nicodemus is that kind of person. Nicodemus is the only guy that's mentioned, uh, he's only mentioned in the Gospel of John, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he asks a question, but not really. You see, I remember when I was in elementary school, I learned the difference between a statement and a question. I think all of you might remember that too. Remember, at the end of a statement is a period. And at the end of a question is a question mark. And so if you look in your Bible, you'll see that when Nicodemus speaks, he doesn't ask a question. He makes a statement. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus makes a statement to get the answer he wanted. Here's a statement. Rabbi, we know that you are teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now let's just spend just a few moments with this statement. Nicodemus, his statement is filled with presumptions. They're presumptions about who Jesus is. He begins with the word rabbi, which Jesus was. But yet Jesus is more than a rabbi. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John puts this in here on purpose, I believe. John reminds us in chapter 1, you remember this, that Jesus isn't just a teacher, but Jesus is the Word. Remember? John chapter 1. And the Word was with God, John says, and the Word was God. You are teacher, Nicodemus goes on to say, which is, frankly... <laughs> what the word rabbi means. So it's sort of a redundant statement. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. In many ways, this could be seen as Nicodemus's effort to place a double emphasis on who he thinks Jesus is. Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is fully human. And what Nicodemus may be trying to do here is to emphasize Jesus' humanity, something that he's been struggling with as he has heard the crowds talk about who Jesus is, something that he has been thinking about as the Pharisees and the Sadducees have criticized Jesus for his teachings and what he has done, and specifically what John, the writer of the gospel, is spending a great deal of his gospel trying to address. Yes, John would say, Jesus is fully human, but Jesus is also fully divine. So it's not just that Jesus comes from God, 
as Nicodemus says, but it's that Jesus is God come to us. Now, I don't want to uh, dismiss Nicodemus here. I mean, after all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, in the time of Christ, the Pharisees were a sect of teachers who were very conservative. Now, I'm going to use those terms, conservative and liberal, sort of in their context of the first century. They may or may not be transferable to our day, so try to put aside all of the, the preconditions and preconceptions that you might have about those terms today. But they were conservative in the time of Christ because Pharisees were the sect of teachers who believed that following the law to the letter was the most important thing that a Jew could do. They were very, to to their credit, they were very serious about following all of the laws of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament to the letter. As a matter of fact, they were so serious about it that they had taken time to delineate the number of laws that are in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. And the number is 613 things that every good Jew was commanded to do. Most of you walked in here today just thinking there were 10. Not only did the Pharisees identify 613 laws in the Hebrew Scriptures that, they, that every Jew was supposed to do, but they wrote this whole commentary that was longer than the law itself in the Old Testament that helped us, quote-unquote, fulfill the 613 laws that were in the Torah or the law. You see, the Pharisees were not big fans of Jesus either. They thought that Jesus was a lawbreaker. That was what they accused him of. Not because Jesus broke the laws of Moses. Nowhere, never did Jesus ever break any of the laws of Moses. But what Jesus did do is he would ignore the laws that the Pharisees had made up that they thought would help folks fulfill the law of Moses. What Jesus was ignoring was not the law of God. What Jesus was ignoring ignoring was the laws of human beings. Now this is probably why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He really couldn't risk his fellow Pharisees seeing him come to Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin. John calls it a ruler of the people. Now, the Sanhedrin is an organization of 70 men made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, which is another sect of teachers. You might call them the liberals or the progressives, but again, don't mix that up with contemporary today definitions, and priests of the Hebrew people. And the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, was an organization, a group of men, who decided all of the issues with regard to religious, civil, and social problems among the Jews, specifically if you lived in the city of Jerusalem. But, to Nicodemus' credit, even though he sneaks off in the dark of night to meet Jesus, he at least comes to Jesus. He has seen all that Jesus has done. He's probably heard Jesus preach and teach. He's probably heard what people have said about who this Jesus is. And he has, within his own heart, at least determined that there's something about Jesus that he needs some clarity about. 
John records Nicodemus three times in his Gospels, in his Gospel. I want to kind of just touch on those a little bit. I'm going to turn to them and read, read them, but if you want to just listen and write these texts down, you can uh, look at them a little bit later in the day or in the week. The second time Nicodemus is mentioned after this exchange at night with Jesus is in John chapter 7 and verse 51. Now, as we go through the Gospel of John, and we're going to be spending the rest of Lent and into Easter in the Gospel of John, actually. As we go through the Gospel of John, by the time we get to John chapter 7, uh, John is, 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 uh, is uh, recounting all of the divisions that are occurring among the people about who this Jesus is. Folks are just beside themselves. Some folks are saying that Jesus is a prophet. Other folks are saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, some folks are arguing about whether or not he can be the Messiah and, and all of the issues. And so the Pharisees order the authorities to go and arrest Jesus and bring him to them. And picking up in verse 45 of John chapter 7, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring Jesus? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered then, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now picture, if you will, Nicodemus hanging out at this gathering. Can you imagine how Nicodemus is feeling, what he's thinking, as he has already had this exchange with Jesus at night that we're focusing on today. He's now gathered with his other brother Pharisees who are ticked off because everybody is running scared because of Jesus. Uh, they're overwhelmed with what Jesus is teaching. And the Pharisee says, have you ever seen a Pharisee that believes in Jesus? Now, now the meaning is, now, if there are no Pharisees believing in Jesus, then no one else should believe in Jesus because we Pharisees, we got the truth. And here's Nicodemus like, oh, yeah, well, I, what should I say? Should I tell them what happened? Should I tell them about my experience? Should I tell them that I secretly snuck off so they wouldn't see me and I met with the man? And let me tell you some of the things that he said. Verse 48. Or 49, the Pharisees continue to, to, to rant and rave. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You ever heard people talk like that? They say, well, my Bible says, as if their Bible is different than my Bible. Somebody who reads a passage in the Bible and what they set up as most important isn't the text itself, but how they understand the text. This is what the Pharisees are doing. If we don't believe in it, and if you don't agree with us, then you're accursed. That's bold talk. Nicodemus hears all of this in verse 50. Nicodemus, look what John says, who had gone to him before. Pay attention to that. That's going to come up again. Who had gone to him before. And who was one of them said to them, Does our law judge a person without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Well, that's nice words. Stable, moderating, brings some civility back to the conversation. It's good, isn't it? But then look what they say. 
Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet ever arises from Galilee. Nicodemus retreats back into his silence again. John brings up Nicodemus one more time in John chapter 19. This is after Jesus has been crucified and is dead. And we are now in John chapter 19 awaiting the time in which the three days in which Jesus will be kept in a tomb before Easter on his resurrection. And verse 38 of chapter 19 After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, see there's that phrase again, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. The extreme generosity of providing that much aloe and myrrh to anoint the body is a glimpse, if not a shout, of Nicodemus having come to believe who Jesus is. But back to the first meeting with Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus wanted so badly to have Jesus answer his questions so as to confirm his own hopes of who Jesus was, to to help Jesus with his, well, his optics. I mean, this Jesus has got some good things to say, but if he would just say them differently, people would probably be more open to it. Maybe if he just moderated his message just a little bit, Maybe the Pharisees and and the chief priests wouldn't get angry with him and he would be able to to teach in relative peace and without the fear of persecution. Maybe, just maybe, this Jesus, a human being with opinions, sure, but someone who could be controlled, who, who could be brought in line with the prevailing ideas of what the Jewish faith was and the rigors of religious obligations that the Pharisees had developed. Well, what does Jesus do? You want to make a statement to Jesus and not ask a question? Then Jesus is going to make a statement back to you. And so Jesus makes a statement. But the difference between Nicodemus' statement and Jesus' statement is that Jesus' statement is to help give Nicodemus the right question. Jesus doesn't waste any time telling Nicodemus about the gospel. Christ knows Nicodemus' heart just like he knows your heart and my heart. Jesus was able to respond not just to Nicodemus' statement, but he was able to respond to the real reason that Nicodemus had come to him. That is, is that Nicodemus wanted to know who Jesus was. Who are you? How can I know you? What is it? What is the purpose for you being here? What is my purpose? Here, the writer of the Gospel, John, begins to describe salvation as a new birth, to be born again, to be born from above, some of your translations may say. It's a unique birth. It's not unlike the actual birth that all of us have experienced. I think everybody here has been born. But 
It's more than just that. I remember all of our children when they were born, as they came into the world, I would look at them, and each time, my wife's probably sick of me saying this, I'm amazed. How can anyone not believe in a creator when we see the birth of a new child? And yet this birth that John's talking about makes that birth seem pale into comparison. You see, John is referencing the birth that Jesus brings as a greater birth, a birth from above, to be born again, a birth that, that, that I have watched as, as I've grabbed a poor dead soul at the bottom of the baptistry and raised them out of the watery grave. It, it's, a, it, it's a birth um, that, that we see people's lives transformed. It changes who they are. Every single one of us who have been born to a mother are destined to die. And every single one of us who have been born from above are destined for eternal life in the kingdom of God. It's a birth that rescues the condemned and redirects us to an eternal destiny of our presence with God. It's a a birth that gives us new desires, new values, new priorities, new hopes, new attitudes. It is a new birth that has an eternal significance. And just as Jesus tries to convey the importance of this, he begins that sentence with truly, truly. If you're sitting here reading another version, it might say verily, verily. Whenever you see these words in the New Testament, you need to stop and pay attention because the Bible's trying to tell you that what's about to follow these words is really, really important. It's a statement that clearly shows us that the effort is not our own. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not our work. It's not by our strength. It's not through our intellect. It is Christ's. Jesus is calling Nicodemus to a revolutionary realization that Nicodemus must empty himself so that God can fill him. Jesus and Nicodemus go back and forth in verses 4 through 15. And we got to give Nicodemus some credit. He's trying hard to keep up with Jesus. And and I encourage you to go back and read that, verses 4 through 15. It it actually gets kind of comical as Jesus and Nicodemus go back and forth. But Nicodemus is struggling with this. He's trying to, to, to make sense of what Jesus is saying. We find ourselves now in the season of Lent where we've been invited to lay down something so that we can receive what God has for us. And here, in this text, what Nicodemus has to lay down is his own notion of his own righteousness. He has to lay down his idea that somehow his relationship with God is dependent upon him. He has to lay down the idea that, that, that it's his work that makes him presentable before God the Father. And Jesus is clear, it's not your work, Nicodemus. It's nothing that you can do. It's only what I can do for you. It is Christ's work. And you know what? For most of us, that is both a startling as well as a liberating realization. To be confronted with the idea that there is nothing that I can do to earn God's love. There is nothing that I can do to earn my place in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is calling Nicodemus to is the boldness of humility. 
He's causing us to exercise the strength of giving up. And he is reminding us that victory comes through surrender. Now that makes absolutely no sense to someone whom the Spirit is not speaking to. It makes absolutely no sense to someone who's not being born from above. But it is the truth. And once you surrender, suddenly it all makes sense. It all comes together. Being born from above. And here comes that best-known verse in the world, John chapter 3, verse 16. You don't even need your Bibles for this. You can just go to the end zone of Broncos game, Broncos game and see this. First verse I ever learned as a kid. King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's probably the greatest text in the Bible. Now I want to just real quick, I know you've heard that before, but I just want to real quick go through that verse with you. The proclamation of God's love. God loved the world. Nicodemus knew God. He knew about God. He knew that God was holy. He knew about the law. He knew about God's judgment. But here's the problem with the Pharisees. They did not stress God's love. Now, you can probably understand why. I mean, when you're immersed with people, when you're immersed with the brokenness of people, the Pharisees, like anybody who does these sorts of things, they understood the evil deeds of human beings. They, they understood how human beings are always looking for loopholes and how to get what they want. They, they understood greed and jealousy and spite and anger and hate. They understood the, the oppression of, of government and, and of occupation and of power. What they struggled to make sense of was the idea that God would love every human being. How can that be? How can a holy God love every human being? Even the pagan religions didn't have a God like the God Jesus is proclaiming, John is writing about. And the pagan religions, gods are cruel. They struggle with the same frailties and sins that humans do. And yet we as Christians proclaim that this love declared by God is the kind of love that can utterly change the world. We see the passion of God's love. For God so. When you see the word so, it's a translation from the original language that seeks to intensify the verb. God so loved, so it's greatly. God never does anything halfway or half-hearted. If God loves someone, it will be as no one else loves. We see the persistency of God's love, that God loved. This word is in the past tense. It says that God loved us even before we were redeemed, not just after we were redeemed. Now, this is important. If you are struggling with the idea that God loves you, This word, his word, declares it so. His love is not dependent on you or me. He loves you because, as John says in his letter, 1 John 4, verse 8, he loves you because God is love. It's who God is. 
We see the proof of God's love. God gave. You and I both know that true love gives. God's love was not just in words, but it was also in deeds, and that he gave his own son on Calvary for our sins. One can give and not love, but one cannot love and not give. One of the first evidences of love in our courtship when we were courting our wives or our husbands was that we gave things. I tried to cook for mine. Thankfully, she gave me a second shot. One of the first evidences of love is the showering of gifts. When we give our time, when we give our talents, when we give our treasures, we are responding to God's love. But it's a love that he first gives to us. And you see, this is the price of God's love. Because John says, God gave his only begotten son. In the last point, we saw that the love gives. Here we see how much love gives. If you love much, you will give much. God's gift says no one has ever loved so much as God has loved. We see the prudence of God's love. God gave his only begotten son. You see, true love is wise. God gave us exactly what we needed most. No other gift was needed. No other gift is so profitable. No other gift is so fitting. We say that love is blind, but the truth is that true love is not blind. It's not stupid. Love gets the right gifts for the one who is loved. And that's what God has done for us. We see the prerequisite of God's love, or at least the benefits of God's love, whoever believeth in him. This is the requisite for benefiting from God's love. God's love, though so great and wonderful, will not benefit you unless you attend to this important requisite. God is not in the business of forcing himself on anyone. It's up to you to hear it, to receive it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. The protection in God's love should not perish. Love protects the objects of its love, and this is a protection which shall never end. We see the provision of God's love should have everlasting life, that this is the greatest life of all, because this gift of everlasting life is eternal in its provision. But our glimpse doesn't end there. And if there's anything that I want you to leave this place with, it's the next verse. You see, everybody knows John 3.16. Not many folks know John 3.17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his Son to condemn the world. He sent his Son to save the world. And how many times haven't we had conversations with people who says, I can't believe in a God that, 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 that wants to throw us all in hell because we don't accept his son. What? No. He didn't send his son into the world so that folks would be condemned. Quite the opposite. He sent his son into the world so that folks won't be condemned. You see, in verse 16, we see the word gave, that God gave his only son. That reminds us of the relationship between us and Christ. But in verse 17, 
We see that God sent his son, which reminds us of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The design of God in sending Christ into the world was the salvation of you and me. Now many folks will say to you, oh, I like this Jesus, man, he's a really good teacher. He's a great moralist, wonderful example. I hope my kids grow up to be just like him. Great social worker. But what many people miss is that Jesus came into the world to heal the division that we had with God because of our rebellion. The reason Jesus came into the world was to restore our relationship with the Father that had been broken because of our actions. The reason Jesus came into the world was to provide the way of salvation for humanity. But the most difficult verse of all, I didn't read it to you today, but I want to read it to you now. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. You see, it's not God who judges us. It's we who judge ourselves. What a terrifying statement that the light has been shown to us and we refuse, we refuse to acknowledge him. What a horrible thing when God sends his only begotten son and we say, nope, not good enough. Don't want anything to do with it. I don't know what your expectations were when you came into this building today. Maybe you thought that you and God would agree to disagree. That you'd walk out of here content to hear that Jesus is a gentle suggestion to a better way of life. Or that this relationship between you and God just isn't going to work. But Jesus is in the business of breaking expectations. May your expectations be broken today. And may the undeniable, overwhelming love of God take root in your heart. May you be born again. May you be changed for his glory. And as my dad would say, for your own good. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Thank you that your love is unrelenting. That you have pursued us. That you call us and invite us. We pray, merciful God, as we prepare to come to your table, that we might meet Jesus and hear his life-giving words. We pray, merciful God, that the truth that you have come to reconcile and not condemn would truly change us. And we pray, O oh God, 
that when we depart from this place, we might be a people who with the boldness of humility and with the victory of surrender will be ambassadors for your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.